chapter 2. John chapter 2, we've been doing a series um, entitled uh, The Work of the Holy Spirit in the Life of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And the series has been working on a simple premise, and it's this. If Jesus Christ needed the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more do you and I? Jesus lived a a life completely controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the fact that, yes, he did it, but we often leak. Nevertheless, we are called to be filled with the Spirit. And by looking at the life of Christ, we begin to see what God is calling us to do by way of living life by the Spirit of God. Oh, I was sitting down in front of my television, scrolling through YouTube. And as I was scrolling through YouTube, I happened upon a course. At that time, I didn't know this, but now I do know this, that the course that I discovered is the most viewed college course in YouTube or on YouTube. And it's a college course called Justice by Michael Sandel. And after you watch a few of these college courses, it becomes immediately clear why it's the most watched course, college course, on YouTube. Michael Sandel is absolutely brilliant. He's mild-mannered, very articulate. He doesn't have all the verbal tics that your pastor tends to have. He's polished. He's a master of the Socratic method. And oh, did I mention he's absolutely brilliant? Not only that, but the subject matter itself is absolutely fascinating. Sandel talks about everything from race to poverty to class and to gender. And he does it in a way that's so profound and interesting. It really keeps you on the edge of your seat. Like I mentioned, this course has been viewed by millions upon millions of people, and it's actually being translated and has been translated in many, many languages. He's traveled around the world to do these courses in everywhere from India to parts of China, everywhere, Australia, everywhere you could imagine. Now, you might be asking, what makes Sandel's course so fascinating. I mean, everyone talks about justice. What makes Sandel's course so fascinating is he is obsessed with one question and one question only. What is the right thing to do? In fact, every single time he asks a question about what his students believe about this issue versus that issue, he always prefaces it by saying, what is the right thing to do? And I think Sandel has tapped into something that I think is inside every one of us. We all want to know what is the right thing to do. It's, it's the question that your elders have been struggling with during COVID. What is the right thing to do, mask or no mask? Clean or don't clean? Open the building or don't open the building? What is the right thing to do? By the way, it's a, it's a question that you're obsessed with. 
How many times in your given day you're wondering, what is the right thing I should do about this situation? From the mundane to the profound. The question that Sandel is asking is a question that everyone in every age asks. What is the right thing to do? And our society is wrestling with some big questions. What are we going to do? What's the right thing to do with respect to race? What is the right thing to do with respect to wearing masks? What is the right thing to do with respect to government tensions, social problems? We're constantly asking ourselves this questions, this, these type of questions with very little cogent answers. Well, what we're about to read is a story, an account. It's found in all four of the Gospels in which we see Jesus confronted with a problem. And we see Jesus underneath the power of the Holy Spirit addressing this problem. We see Jesus doing the right thing. And what I'd like to give you today is a framework for how you and I, as we approach the complicated situations in life, it's just a framework that we can see in this passage that helps us determine, or begin to determine, I should say, what is the right thing to do. Hear now God's holy and inspired word from John chapter 2, verse 13, down to verse number 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All flesh is as grass. And the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the provision of your word and the provision of your Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom that we need to live in this world. Father, the issues are complicated. 
And your people are often perplexed about what is the right thing to do. Help us as we look at the example of our Savior to formulate a pattern by which our hearts are trained to see the right thing and to have the courage to do the right thing. Oh, Father, we love you. The spirit is willing, but our flesh is profoundly weak. Give us your power that we might be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. What I'd like to do is simply walk through this passage and help us to see how Jesus answered this question regarding what is the right thing to do. Let's begin with the problem. We have to understand what the problem is. Look at verse 13 and 14. The word of God says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, there's nothing nefarious going on here. I don't get a hint of anything nefarious. And on the surface, you would be right. The money changers actually served an important function. As Gentiles and Jews from afar came to Jerusalem, they couldn't carry uh, the money that they needed. At least they didn't have access to the Jewish money. And they couldn't bring their own sacrifice. And so they depended on uh, folks being there to uh, exchange their uh, Gentile money or the Roman money into the Jewish money that can only be in the temple. And they depended on people having uh, goats and sheep and pigeons for the sacrifice. And so what we're reading here is the normal course of temple life where these money uh, changers are providing a necessary service. And so in one sense, this is a needed system. This is not a system that Jesus is trying to burn down or tear down. It's a necessary function within the life of temple living. The problem wasn't the system. The problem was the money changers themselves. Elsewhere in the synoptic accounts, Jesus chastised these men as turning his house into a den of thieves. In this passage, he says, house of trade. But the den of thieves is the most accurate description of these money changers. Why would he call them as being ones that are turning his father's house into a den of thieves? Because biblical historians tell us that they were exploiting Gentile worshipers and poor Jews. They charge exorbitant rates of the money exchange. They charge excessive rates uh, for the poor man's sacrifice. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He said the commission for exchanging money from the Roman uh, money and the, <clears throat> and the Gentile uh, currency into the Jewish currency that's needed was as high as 12%. 0.5%. Just by way of comparison, if you went to a bank and you had to get money changed into a currency where you're going, the bank would only charge you 1% to 3%. Let me put this in further context for you. The banks nowadays are obsessed with making money. If they could get away with charging us 10%, they would. But here, 
they were charging 12.5%. Not only that, the markup for certain sacrifices was as high as 8,000%. Again, let me put this in context for you. The clothes that you have on, you buy at a cost markup of about 100%. Even when they tell you your clothes are 50% off, you're still paying 50% over the cost. But here they were charging 8,000% more for sacrifices. Now that is bad enough, but it gets worse. The very place that they were supposed to go to pray and to meet with God, these Gentiles especially, was the outer court, and, and, or the court of the Gentiles. And in the court of the Gentiles is where they had all of the sheep and the oxen and the pigeons. And as Gentile worshipers paid exorbitant price and these exorbitant fees, they would then have to go and try and pray in a place that sounded like an open market with people yelling and screaming and there are animals everywhere. Listen, it's hard enough for me to pray in a closet that's quiet. You and I know what I'm talking about. Every time you kneel down to pray or sit down to pray, your mind goes a million different places and you're praying, oh God, please help me to focus on praying and, and beseeching you and asking you. And you know how difficult it is to pray even when you're in private. Imagine trying to pray with a, with a goat trying to lick your face or a sheep running up underneath your body or pigeons flapping all over the place. This was crazy. So not only were these uh, money changers being greedy and exploiting the poor worshipers, but their greed led them to not be able to do the very thing they came there for which is to pray and to worship. Now, I want to say two things before we go any further. As Jesus, we see Jesus dealing with this grave injustice. The first thing I want to say is that this was happening all of Jesus' life. From, from when he was a little boy and his parents took him to the temple, as a little boy, he saw this happening. By the time Jesus was born, the temple was uh, already in the process of being built. There were some other portions that they had to build, but the, the portion to which they're speaking about was already built. The system had already established. So even when Jesus was a little boy, each and every time he went up to Jerusalem with his family, and each and every time he went into the temple, he saw this injustice happen. And even as a little boy, he wanted to do something about it, but he couldn't. He couldn't. He was not of age. But I want you to notice something else, and it's something that I find to be pretty profound, and it's this. Everybody else saw what was going on, but nobody else did anything about it. Every Jew that went to the temple knew that they were charging exorbitant prices. Every Jew that went up to the temple knew that they were fleecing these poor workers. And you know what? None of them could claim ignorance because they knew what the word of God says. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. it says this, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
They knew what Proverbs 22.8 says, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. They knew what Numbers 9.14 says, if a foreigner dwelling among you wants to observe the Passover of the Lord, he is to do so according to the Passover statutes and its ordinance. You are to apply the same statute to both the foreigner and the native in the land. They knew this. And yet they lacked the moral courage to do anything about it. And why did they lack this moral courage? Well, there's two reasons, I suppose. The first is this, because it wasn't happening to them. It wasn't happening to them. And isn't it often the case that something isn't happening to us, we tend to put it in the back of our mind? They didn't have to be disturbed. It wasn't their courts that were being filled with animals. It wasn't necessarily them being charged exorbitant rates. And so they just walked past these Gentiles and went about their business, knowing full well that these poor worshipers who loved the Lord just like them wanted to meet with God just like them, was being fleeced, and they did nothing about it. Why? Because it wasn't happening to them. But notice also, they were afraid. When you read some of the accounts in World War II, there were many Germans that hated the fact that the Jews were being treated like this. But they did nothing because they were afraid. Now, some of them did. But by and large, they were afraid. This is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. To give us eyes to see. And to give us the moral courage to act when we need to act and not be afraid. And this is what Jesus had. Now notice the solution, verse 15 through 17. The Bible says that Jesus quietly made cords. And then he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. And he, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the temple. And, though, and he told those who, stole, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal for your house will consume him. Consume him. Now to some, Jesus' action seems like that of a radical revolutionary. Here's Jesus doing what radical revolutionaries do. They overthrow the government. They overthrow the religious systems. And some see here Jesus as, as the paradigmatic radical that we all should follow. Others come to this text and when they read this, they're thoroughly confused because this is not, this does not harmonize with the Jesus that they know who is gentle, meek, and mild. A friend of mine recently sent me a picture of a Jesus who is a white European bearded woman in a long flowing robe, long flowing hair and makeup, leaping through a field with heart streaming from his or hers body. 
And the caption below it said, Jesus, who is meek and mild. Now hear me today. Jesus is meek and mild. But he was also a person filled with the zeal of the house of the Lord. And hear me today. Jesus is not a radical revolutionary He was doing something that everyone who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit ought to be doing. And even his disciples realized that this was the case because they looked and they recognized that the zeal for his house, the word of God says in verse number 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal for your house will consume me. What are they remembering when they see Jesus? Well, they were remembering the psalmist in Psalm 69. And the psalmist in Psalm 69 was, was a, uh, one of the worshipers that came back from the Babylonian exile. And as he came and as the temple was being established, he was zealous for the fact that God's people will get the worship again, but they were being prevented by those around them. And so he says that he was, his, he was filled with zeal for the house of the Lord. He was passionate for the house of the Lord and God's people, and he wanted to see uh, them be able to go and worship. And so the disciples realized that Jesus' actions are in line with every person, every child of God, that we are zealous to see God's kingdom, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't the actions of a radical revolutionary. This is the action of every Christian. This is not unusual. This is normal for the person who is filled with the zeal of the Lord. But this is also the actions of someone who is meek and mild and who understands their duty to be the hands and feet of God here on earth. I want to be careful because what what does zeal mean? Some of us can take that over the edge. Here, zeal simply means that a Holy Spirit-driven passion and concern for God's people and God's kingdom and God's house. In 1517, an Augustinian monk was filled with zeal for God's people, for God's church. And he looked at the abuse of the church at that time and how they were selling indulgences to poor farmers and poor people, telling them that they needed this to go to heaven. And he said that that was wrong. And this lowly Augustinian monk, he didn't just do nothing. He didn't say, well, you know, I know better, so that's good enough for me. And even though he was afraid, he mustered the moral courage to write out 95 theses. And he walked to the castle door at Wittenberg and he nailed it to the door. Why? It was not because he was trying to be a radical revolutionary. And it was not because he was trying to upend a system. But he was absolutely filled with the zeal and passion for God and his people that led him to do something about it. And so that's what he did. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He said... It is enough. 
I'm tired of going into the temple and seeing these poor Jewish and poor poor folks that are traveling, these sojourners that are traveling. I'm tired of going in and seeing them fleeced and exploited and taken advantage of. So he threw over the entire system. And what was he trying to do? Well, he was practicing what you and I need to practice. First of all, restorative justice. He was trying to restore true worship the way it was. Remember, this was happening at the Passover and at the temple. Remember what the Passover and the temple was for. The Passover was a reminder of God's deliverance of his people from bondage. And here they were putting these poor people in bondage. What was the temple for? The temple was a place where people can come and receive forgiveness and hope in the gospel. And what was happening? They were being fleeced and they couldn't even pray to the God they came to pray for. And Jesus was trying to restore that. But not only restorative justice, Jesus was meeting out retributive justice. He was punishing these money changers for what they did. He was trying to let them know that they would no longer be able to do this. And so he overthrew their tables and he scattered their money so they can get the point that what they were doing was wrong. Now notice the third thing. Notice the motive. Look at verse number 18 through 20. Because even though Jesus understands the problem, and even though Jesus is doing the right thing, he has to do it with the right motive. Verse 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us from doing these things? What are they asking him? That's a curious question. What sign are you doing, Jesus? They were trying to get at his motives. Why are you doing this, Jesus? See, during the time of Jesus in the first century Palestine, there were radicals everywhere. There were zealots everywhere. And these zealots would often do things to draw attention to themselves and their movement. They cared nothing about the people. They just wanted to establish their kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And so they're asking him, Jesus, are you just trying to promote your own self and your own cause? Are you like the other wannabes, revolutionaries claiming to be doing God's work? Are you just here to create chaos and to cause violence just like the others? And what does Jesus say? Notice verse number 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What does Jesus answer to them? Jesus' answer to them is this. My motives are, are different from the insurrectionists and the rebels. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I'm not trying to gain social capital. No. My motives are redemptive. My motives are redemptive. Bruce Walke, uh, distinguished Old Testament professor, gave a distinction between the righteous and the wicked that I think all of us need to hear. And it's emblematic of what Jesus is trying to do. Here's what Bruce Walke says. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves 
to advantage the community. But the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. I'll repeat that one more time because I found it to be very powerful. The righteous here, Christ, is willing to disadvantage himself. And by virtue of that, we, the church, should be willing to disadvantage ourselves so that we can bring an advantage to the community. But the wicked is different. They are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And Jesus is embodying this. He's foreshadowing by the fact that he's overturning these tables and upending this system. He's foreshadowing the fact that he will soon die for us. He will soon die for the zeal that is consuming him so that no longer do they have to go to the temple and depend on the exchange rates. No longer will they have to depend on the bulls and the goats. No longer do they have to go into the outer courts and pray filled with animals that he will make all of them individual temples filled with the Holy Spirit and imbue them with the power for the zeal of his Father's house and for others. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's letting them know that my motives are bigger than what you think they are. I am not interested in an earthly kingdom And I'm not interested in building some earthly uh, domain. In fact, Jesus rejected all of these when it came uh, to his temptation. No, what Jesus is doing here and to them is saying that I am willing to die to make sure that everyone who is in that outer court can now come to my Father unheeded. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus did not provide lip service, hashtags, tweets. He practiced what is known as costly grace. A grace that cost him something. His life. So what does this mean for us, the church? Well, The first thing I think it does is it calls us to confront the motives in our own hearts as a church when we seek to do the will of God for him and his people, are we filled with the zeal of God, the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we seeking to build our own kingdom here at CVBC or to advance the kingdom of God? It forces us to ask that question because the world will always question our motives. Why do we want more people here? Why do we want to go out in our community? Why are we doing anything that we're doing today? Is it because we're consumed by the zeal of God in his house? Or do we just want to make ourselves look good? Do we want to just appear righteous? Or do we want to be righteous? So Jesus is causing the church to confront the nature of our hearts. If we are going to do the right thing, 
we must be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the zeal for God's house and his people. We cannot hope to do the right thing outside of that. But notice the second thing it forces the church to do. It forces us to ask, are we driven by redemptive motive? Is what we do is what we are engaging in inherently redemptive. That's an important question. Because the church is engaged in a lot of things that I don't think is meant to be redemptive. We're trying to win culture wars. And we're trying to smack down the enemy. But we as the church have to start asking ourselves the question, is our motive tending towards redemption? Do we care enough to disadvantage ourselves so for the advantage of the community to bring them to Christ? Are we like Paul who are willing to be all things to all men that we might win one? So Jesus forces us to ask that question. But thirdly, it's this. Do we have a heavenly view of justice or an earthly view of justice? Do you all realize that even though Jesus cleansed the temple here, Early in his ministry, by all the gospel accounts, he had to do it again toward the end. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John records his second cleansing of the temple, which shows us that, that even here they didn't get the message. And do you also realize that the people that Jesus was trying to help in this passage so that they might worship in the course of the Lord were the same people who said, crucify him. Let me tell you something, beloved. Justice in our world today is complicated. We're not always going to be victorious. It is a messy, messy world. And we do not stand here as people looking to see something profound done here in this life. But we pursue the mission and the work of the church because we are filled with the zeal and the passion and power of the Lord to see his will be done. And so we as God's people, if we hope to do the right thing, we must do it with the right motives. Is it redemptive? Does it accomplish the task that God has for us? Those are important questions to ask, and we see Jesus answering those questions. If we ever hope to do the right thing, we must be filled with the zeal and power of the Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we indeed thank you. As we seek to do the right thing, help us as your people pursue the work of the ministry in the power of God. Thank you that Jesus gave us a path forward. And that path forward as your people, is, as we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we see the need and we have the moral courage to provide for that need. That as we see and we look in our world, help us to be prompted to do what you have called us to do. Give us the energy to do it. Help us not to shrink back but help us to move forward in doing the right thing. Thank you, Father.
for sending Jesus to show us that it is possible. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.